welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, with Pastor John King. It's been said that Charles Spurgeon had six steps up to his pulpit, and at each step he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And today's message... Um, speaks to that need in our life to believe in the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're going to find out why. Uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 this week. We've got a, maybe one or two more weeks of Ephesians. As you're turning there in your Bibles or your tablets, just want a reminder uh, we left off last week with the last of the house table discussions, the relations, you know, slaves and their masters, and seeing that just like marriage relationships and child and parent relationships, for it to work, it all centers around the principle of mutual submission, that we're to submit to one another. And when it all plays out... The way God intends it, to, intends it to, you have a happy and harmonious home. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, you know, you look at all the struggles we have in life, we realize our own sin nature, and sometimes it gets all kind of jumbled together. And, uh, but I think we need to be reminded that Christianity does work. <laughs> you know, it works quite well for today and for all of eternity. And despite all the battles that we fight uh, we can testify to the fact that if we follow God's instructions, things are going to be all right, even in our struggles and our deepest trials. Now this week, we leave the tranquility of home life and come directly to a field of battle to discuss the reality of spiritual warfare. This is a conflict that goes far beyond our human senses and our own human strength. But remember but that by the power of his might, he's more, more than sufficient to be, for us to be found victorious. In closing his letter to the Ephesians, Paul reminds them and us of the irony that while we can certainly enjoy a our harmonious life in Christ, it is all the while lived on hostile ground. As one writer put it, it is the life of a camp in the enemy's territory to be held till the supreme commander advances to the eternal relief and triumph within, that is within our relationships, these harmonious relationships, all is to be mutual loyalty and love a scene of noble order and fellowship. But the ramparts are not for one moment to be left unwatched. Nor is the saint ever for a moment to live and moved unarmed. The Bible teaches us that we were once under the complete control of three powerful forces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, we remember that from the earlier part of the letter. He says, and you, speaking to the people who have been born again, 
he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." Now, even though we who call for on Christ for salvation have been made alive spiritually and we no longer blindly walk under the evil spell of all these forces, we're still in conflict with them. And the truth of the matter is, it's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment fight in conflict with them. And it goes on to the end of our earthly journey. But it's not a go-it-alone type of fight. It's been called the good fight of faith. Learning how to have an increasing dependence on God while at the same time losing all confidence in self. And as we've been learning through Paul's letter, allowing ourselves to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though our conflict is along these three battle fronts, Today's passages focuses only on one of them, and that is our conflict with the devil. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place. You know, everything happens for a reason. Every message comes at the timely uh, place and purpose that you have, Lord God. And so we thank you that you've brought us here today. And let us be mindful of our supernatural enemy, But let us also be more mindful that he that within me is stronger than he who is without. And so, Lord, we are, by your might, protected from this mighty foe. And so, Lord, as we study his methods, as we look at his schemes, let us all be prepared for the spiritual battle that we're certainly going to encounter each and every day. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for your grace. And we ask that you go before us now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Verses 10 to 11 of this passage, we have what you'd call a call to arms. A call to arms. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of of his might. Now Paul in saying the word finally, he is signaling not necessarily the end of the letter, although we are near the end of the letter, but he's about to transition from the previous subject regarding how we're to walk in harmony with one another. And now he moves on to the new subject, which we've already mentioned, that of spiritual warfare. Speaking, my brethren, these are fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, just like each of you here today, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus. So he has the call to arms, and he starts out with a specific call, and that's to be empowered. The call to be empowered. He says, notice, be strong in the Lord. This is to receive strength or to increase in strength 
You might say, strengthen yourselves always. And it's a Greek word, which is again a present tense verb, which means it suggests a continuous strengthening as you walk through life. A lot of times we like to check boxes in our spiritual walk. Well, I did that. I gave my life to Jesus. You know, I said my prayers today. I asked the Lord to give me strength and I asked him to walk in his power. And we think that that's all we ever have to do. Just one and and we're done. But that's not the case. Because this is a continuous battle, we have to continually arm ourselves. But we start out by being empowered. Not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. It says here, in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. You see, Jesus is our inexhaustible resource. And it continues, he says, not only in the Lord, but in the power of his might. You see, the Lord has unlimited sovereign power. This might, this is the ability or force or strength. You see, the Lord has the ability to use all of his power with all wisdom and with all perfection. So why would we want to rely on our own strength? With that in mind, why would we want to ever rely on our own strength, knowing how weak and frail and fragile we are? Some of you guys say, I'm not fragile. Yes, you are. In chapter 1, Paul describes the power of God as exceeding and great, unlimited and beyond measure. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it's the same power he has extended to you and I. You can always go to that well. You can always go to that source of strength. You can always be reminded that Jesus defeated death and rose from the dead. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Complete and total victory and sovereignty and power. When Jesus spoke to Paul after Paul prayed three times to have the thorn removed from his side, you recall that story. And Jesus said, he said, Paul said, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. To experience the strength of the Lord, we must become weak. We must become fragile before him. We must admit our need. We must be humbled. And we combine humility with faith, and then we can receive his grace. Being made strong within and only sourced from the Lord is our key to understanding. Because you can have the best armor in the world. We're talking about being armored for battle here. But it will be worthless if the soldier lacks the heart to fight. You lack the desire to fight. David Guzik wrote this. He says, before a soldier is given a gun or shown how to fire a missile... He goes through basic training. One great purpose for basic training is to build up the recruit's physical strength. It is as if the army says, Soldier, we are going to give you the best weapons and armor possible. But first, we have to make sure that you are strong 
so that you can use what we give you. So he calls us to be empowered. And then next, in her call to arms, in verse 11, he calls us to be equipped. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Here's a command to personally accept what's been provided. To put it on as a garment. To make it as your own. And as we said, because we fight a spiritual battle, we need spiritual armor. Notice, he says the whole armor. Greek word panoplia. Uh, Vine's definition, you could find it in uh, your concordance. It says... This panoplia speaks of the spiritual help supplied by God for overcoming the temptations of the devil. Among the Greeks, the panoplia was the complete equipment used by heavily armed infantry. It includes the shield, the sword, the lance, the helmet, the shin guards, and the breastplate. Now next week we're going to talk about all this spiritual armor that God has provided for us. But notice the charge to put on the whole armor of God. You can't just put on one piece here and there willy-nilly. You can't go into this battle not properly dressed. Because the enemy is very powerful and crafty. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. New Living Translation says, so that you will be able to. The old, sometimes the old translations, it's like sort of an iffy situation. But no, if you put on the whole armor of God, you will be able to stand. To stand against refers to one who in the midst of a fight holds his position. It's a military expression. Paul loved to use military expressions. He was surrounded by Roman guards when he wrote these letters. Referring to the posture of opposition towards our enemy and any enemy really but what are you standing against well we know it's not flesh and blood we're going to see that in the next verse but what we're standing against are what he refers to as the wiles the wiles of the devil methodia these are cunning arts and deceit craft and trickery the NIV calls them the schemes or strategies that our enemy uses against us. And he says the wiles, of course, of the devil. The devil, Diablos. Namely, Satan. He's the prince of demons. He's the author of evil. He persecutes good men. He estranges mankind from God and he entices them to sin. And he afflicts them with diseases by means of demons who take possession of their bodies at his bidding the malignant enemy of God and the Messiah. Now it's been pointed out that no matter how low mankind has descended into depravity, and you and I could point out multiple examples, numerous examples of mass murder, serial killings, all the terrible things that we see each and every day on the headlines, none have equaled Satan's evil. He has no conscience, says one writer. He has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, and no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. 
Now, I don't want to say too much about him because we are, after all, you know, we have the Lord. But we do need to understand that he is very powerful and why you must be armed to stand against him. C.S. Lewis, if you read his writings, he describes the face of evil in his book, Paralandra. You might be familiar with this. It's in which the hero is a professor whose name is Ransom. And he encounters his Satan figure named Dr. Weston. And they live on a flawless planet. And it's Dr. Weston dispassionately ripped helpless creatures apart because he had nothing else to do at the moment their eyes met. Professor Ransom and Dr. Weston. Professor Ransom described it this way. It looked at Ransom in silence and at last began to smile. We have all often spoken. Ransom himself had often spoken of the devilish smile. Now he realized that he had never taken the words seriously. The smile was not bitter nor raging nor in an ordinary sense sinister. It was not even mocking. It seemed to summon Ransom with horrible naivety of welcome into the world of its own pleasures. As if all men were at one in these pleasures. As if they were the most natural thing in the world and no dispute could ever have occurred about them. It did not defy goodness. It ignored it to the point of annihilation. This creature was wholehearted. The extremity of its evil had passed beyond all struggle into some state which bore a horrible similarity to innocence. It was beyond vice. Our enemy, the devil, has been at work for a long, long time. He's had a very long time to work on his methods. One writer points out that if a person with average intelligence had just 100 years to study and learn on the subject of mathematics, he'd be a certifiable genius. In a thousand years of study, you could learn to be a Newton or an Einstein. What about 10,000 years? How many languages could you learn? How many subjects could you master? Our enemy has studied mankind and he knows our every weakness. What are some of his methods? Well, first of all, he appeals to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. That attractive person or a position of power and prestige or a craving for possessions. He knows how to put those things before our eyes. He also sends false teachers he himself is described as a messenger, an angel of light. <coughs> False teachers that promise satisfaction through human goodness and works. Ego and self-image. Personal development and growth. How about self-improvement? You can live your best life now. But these appealing and false messages cannot deliver a person from the great trials of suffering in life or in death. 
One writer was reflecting on this passage and it seemed ironic to him, so he wrote down. He says, in this connection, it is interesting to observe that as pilgrims we walk, as Christians we walk, as witnesses we go, as contenders we run, and as fighters we stand. The devil seeks to advance his evil agenda through deception. Paul expressed this concern for the faithfulness of the Corinthian church when he wrote to them. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. When Paul wrote this, he's likely thinking of the false teachers and the the divisiveness in the church that he mentioned earlier in the letter back in chapter 4. Verse 14, he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You see, it's wise for us to live a simple life as Christians. Understanding the simple truth of God's word. Uh, Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, as we were talking about studying this particular topic, he says, our study has its dangers. It is possible to move from practical disbelief in the devil and his minions to a preoccupation with them. Like the New Yorker cartoon which pictured a man pointing towards his car's transmission and saying, I think there's a demon in my bell housing. We've probably all felt that way at times, he says. But if we attribute every problem to demons, we're in trouble. So we want to be careful with that. But we also need not forget the reality You and I are in a constant battle. In fact, many times we seem to forget or ignore or misidentify who the real enemy is. You know, as you came to Christ, and if you came to Christ as as an adult, as I did, maybe you recall the shock of realizing that when you truly surrendered your life to Christ, you found yourself in a battle. A struggle that tested your faith. Some of the first things that I encountered as a new Christian, and and there were great times, glorious times of fellowship and fellowship with the Lord and repentance and tears and all the things that come together when we surrender. You know, being delivered from terrible habits in my life. But I also experienced this spiritual battle. And what happened to me is I experienced the effects of religion, man's religion. And all the debates that go on in the church about women in leadership or Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, you know, how we do church, church government. You could just pick whatever you want to pick that Christians can argue and divide over. And that becomes a spiritual battle. And for a new Christian, that's kind of a shocker. You're like, wait a minute, I thought we all loved one another. I thought we all got along. And it's not so. And it's one of the ways that the enemy uses to test 
or excuse me, to draw us away from the Lord. Because I've met a lot of people that said, well, I tried church and it was just, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to be a part of them. But it's one of the ways that the Lord tests our faith. He allows us to go through these trials. But notice the source of our strength in the Lord and in the power of his might. So far, notice that. Notice also the necessity. We must be properly armed for this battle. As Guzik writes, his armor is of God, both in the sense that it is from him, it's God's armor being put on us, and in the sense that, you know, it's his actual armor. I mean, this is what he's trying to say. You know, this isn't some armor that we, we made on our own to put on our own, you know, self-righteousness and such like that, or intelligence or extra things, you know, the belt of pride. That's something we might build, but God builds these, this armor for us. It's his armor. That's why it's so effective at protecting us. Our job is to put it on. He shares his armor with us. And he says, equipped with God's armor, it's no wonder that we're more than conquerors, as we see in Romans 8.37. And also notice, if you will, keep this in the back of your mind, sometimes we think we're fighting for victory. You know, and that comes back on our own strength. No, we are fighting from the position of victory that's already been won. The battle's already been won. I make it sound easy, I know it's not. But the truth will keep you going. The truth knowing that the battle's been won and we fight it from a position of victory. Now... We have a responsibility. We can't blame everything on the world, the flesh and the devil. We talk about the flesh, really. We have a responsibility. And what do we do often as Christians? Martin Lloyd-Jones studied this passage, and he noted that we often squander our resources. We squander the strength and the things that God has given us. We waste it away. It's as if we had received some of the available might of God but simply leaked away like water in a bucket that's full of holes. These are some of the things that Lloyd-Jones thought sapped the strength of a Christian. Think about it, how worn out you can be by some of the things that we do. He says we can commit to too many spiritual works or things. Now you fill your calendar up. Now I'm so tired, you have no time for the spiritual things. We can actually have too much conversation. We can have arguments, we can have debates, wrangling, even laziness. All of that saps our spiritual strength. We can spend too much time in the wrong company. We can have way too much foolish talking and joking. We can have an unhealthy love of money and a career, a desire for respectability and image, unequally yoked, ungodly entertainment, and a wrong attitude about doubting the word of God. Those kind of things, if you think about it, they sap your strength. They make you vulnerable for the enemy. Lloyd-Jones wrote this. You know, all those things are, are real, okay? Busy lives and all the responsibilities we have and doing life. And he says, we have to walk on a knife edge in these matters. You must not become extreme on one side or the other, he writes. But you have to be watchful. And of course, you can always tell by examining yourself 
whether your strength is increasing or declining. In the next two verses, we're going to talk about knowing your enemy. Knowing your enemy. Now, as students of the Bible, we're familiar with the fact that the spirit beings exist. And that Jesus has dominion over all of them. When we went through the Gospel of Mark, we saw that he had cast out thousands of demons. You know, this, I mean, if you're, some of you might be keeping up with the, uh, the chosen. I'm here to endorse that as a, not a uh, substitute for church, not a substitute for learning your Bible, but a type of uh, TV show that's really worth the time. The Chosen series, I can't say much, much more good about it. It's awesome. It's very, very well done. And we notice that Jesus was casting out demons, cast, constantly doing this. So there is a spiritual um, entity. There's a spiritual world invisible world and actually an invisible war that Paul begins to reveal to us. Ephesians 1.21 said Jesus has dominion over all of these spirits. He says far above he is above all principality and power and might and dominion. And every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. Excuse me. <clears throat> There's an invisible world. Uh, Sperry Chafer wrote this. He said, this invisible world, these beings, they're divided into two classes, the fallen and the unfallen. There are those known as the holy angels whose ministries are available to Christ at the time of his death. And there are unnumbered legions of evil spirits who serve the purpose of Satan. Now, as we begin to talk a little bit about these fallen foes, remember that their ultimate fate is described in the book of Revelation. There's going to be a war in heaven during the Great Tribulation. And the evil spirits under the leadership of Satan will actually be banished from the heavenly realm altogether. Where they currently reside, they will be kicked out. And they'll be expelled by the holy angels under the leadership of the archangel Michael. We read of that in Revelation 12. There you see it. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, if you think and you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to give my life to the Lord. And maybe somebody reminds you that the rapture could happen in any minute. And you say, well, I can, I can come to Christ during the tribulation if there is such a thing. No, you don't want to put yourself in that position. I mean, we just read here that all these demons and the devil himself will be cast to where? The earth. Where people are. And so he's going to be pretty mad. And so with, on top of all the judgments that are going to be happening during the great tribulation, you've got this wicked mess of Satan and all the evil angels being released to the earth. You don't want to be here for that. No, you don't. No, you don't. 
so Paul, in verses 12 through 13, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That word wrestle, it's a Greek word, pale. It's a, con- it's a contest. If you're familiar with Greek wrestling uh, or any kind of, you know, you got, today we've got the octagon and the, and the uh, you know, ultimate fighting and all that stuff. It's a bloody, nasty affair. Um, but it's a contest between two in which the endeavors to throw the other, which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponent down with his hand on his neck. In other words, to choke him out. Now, the, the big difference between the Greek type of wrestling and the modern-day uh, UFC and all this stuff that we have is, in some cases, in the Greek wrestling, they could actually gouge their guy's eyes out. That was, you know, not only choke him out, but gouge his eyes out. Anyway, I thought I'd throw that out there for you guys uh, who think you're tough. But any, in any event, that's gross, I, I know. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Again, we said we need spiritual armor because we are going up against spiritual beings. Now, Paul is going to present us with a list of these hostile supernatural entities, which I like how Chuck Swindoll refers to them kind of as the spiritual mafia. The spiritual mafia. First, you have principalities. Arche. Members that are leaders of an organization. And look, they are very numerous. Mark chapter 5, verse 9. What happened when Jesus encountered the possessed man in the Gadarenes? He came and he says, then he asked him, what is your name? Speaking to this demon. And he answered to Jesus and he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. So these principalities and powers are many. It says, but against principalities, against powers, exosia, authority. This is the demons of Satan who are organized, listen, into a government or a hierarchy of evil located in the lower atmosphere of heaven. You know, you've heard about the three heavens. The ultimate place is God on high with Jesus. The second heaven is the stars and, you know, the, the universe and all the things we see out in the universe and all the stars we see out in the universe. And then, of course, it's our closest atmosphere. And, and so you have the first heaven with us where we're breathing, the second heaven, that's the stars, and then the third heaven, which is where Paul went and actually got to see and hear things that he wouldn't even repeat. He wouldn't, he wouldn't even bring back. And so these demons of Satan, you know, the prince of the power of the air, as Jesus described him, they actually are located in this lower atmosphere of heaven. And against the rulers in darkness of this age, again, this cosmocrats or cosmocrator. Now, according to one historian, Christian historian, his name is F.F. Bruce, these cosmic rulers may be referring to the high-ranking fallen angels such as the angel princes of Persia and Greece who hindered the archangel messenger in his divine errand. And you remember when we went through the book of Daniel in chapter 10, it said, the angel said to Daniel as he was in prayer, he said, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, a good posture when you're in prayer, your words were heard, a good reminder that God hears our prayers, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, 
withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. He's referring to these fallen angels. And now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. So this is a real battle. The Old Testament testifies of it. Jesus mentions it. And what do they do? Well, they rule the darkness of this present age that we live in. What happens when men and women are placed under the darkness and deceit of the enemy? The result is ignorance of both truth and reality. I mean, who can say that what the truth is anymore? When you take God out of our society and you take God out of our public school system, who can tell you what the truth is out there? I want to know who they are. If they're not speaking from the Bible, I'm skeptical. Are you skeptical? Yes. I mean, that's the way it is. And so what happens is the darkness of this age, it results in ignorance. But it's ignorant of the things that are important. It's not about facts that you can prove. It's ignorant of the importance of where we came from. That's what the darkness hides. How did the world come into existence? Oh, you can get into that all you want. What is our purpose? Oh, you know, people are constantly striving to know that. And what is the end? We know that the Bible provides these answers, but we also know, learning here, that the darkness of this age, controlled by these rulers, Satan and his demons, have blinded people. They have blinded people. And that's the battle. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness, and notice again, in the heavenly places. Evil purposes and desires. Referring to Satan and all of his demonic forces, the spirit powers who under the permissive will of God and in the consequence of human sin, all those things working together, exercise satanic and therefore antagonistic authority over the world in its present condition of spiritual darkness and alienation from God. What is being made clear to us is that they, these Satan and his demons, are powerful, they're numerous, and they're organized. And they seek to blind the minds of men and women to the gospel in order to capture the spirit of man to themselves and to their own destruction. Misery loves company. And so in verse 13 we have, our warriors' mandate, we're soldiers. The warrior's mandate is being re-emphasized. We are to stand firm. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You know, he's stressing our need that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, to set against, to resist, to oppose. The evil day refers to today, any day, whatever temptations and trials confront us at any given moment. And he says, and having done all, having put on the armor that God has supplied with you to you, having understand who your enemy is, he says, above all, or having done all, he says, what does he say? To stand. To stand. Histami, speaking of one who holds his ground 
and vanquishes his enemy. You stand your ground, you resist, you resist the devil, and what happens? He flees. Yes. But you have to understand that you need to be filled with the Spirit, and you need to be fully covered in His armor. Amen? Amen. Now, as you consider these passages today, some of you <coughs> might... You know, Paul speaks of it, we speak of it, if we read these passages, if we believe they're true, we speak of them as being factual, we speak of them as being very distinct, it's a very a strong declaration being made by Paul, but you might feel as though you missed it. Perhaps you would rather have remained in blissful ignorance. How could you miss it and why? Well, Remember, the battle is taking place in an unseen realm. It has spiritual associations and realities. It's an invisible world with an invisible war. And we have a challenge to our understanding. And, and sometimes people, you know, they might think you're strange if they have no, you know, biblical concept of this reality. Because they're like, I don't see anything. What are you talking about? I don't see a guy at a pitchfork. I don't see somebody made up dressed like a devil. Well, it's real. Because you know what goes on in your mind. And you know the terrible things that happen in our world. How else could you explain it? <coughs> What's made clear is that these beings are subordinate to God. And they're inferior to Him. And in their attributes. They aren't all-knowing. They aren't all-seeing. And they aren't all-powerful as God is. And we can assure one another that just because it's invisible doesn't take away its reality. The strategies of Satan and his demons. Chip Ingram, Pastor Chip Ingram wrote his book, uh, The Strategies of Satan. And his, he says, speaking of this invisible war that goes on, he says... That means that our temptations are not random. They're just random things that happen. The false perspectives we encounter do not come haphazardly. The lies we hear, the conflicts we have with others, the cravings that consume us when we're at our weakest points, they're all part of the plan to make us casualties in the invisible war. They are organized assaults designed to neutralize the very people God has filled with his awesome power. It's real. Just because I can't see it or sense it with the five natural senses that I have. And there will be times when we'll see these manifestations take place. I've heard plenty of testimonies of people even possessed. People who have given themselves over to Satan and the results of that. And you can sense in the atmosphere the evil. Just go, to a, just go to a prayer walk outside of an abortion facility. You'll come face to face with the enemy right there. But it's not flesh and blood. It's not the people that are standing out there escorting those ladies to go in and have an abortion. No, it's Satan that's behind all of that. You remember our two other battlefronts? The world system and our carnal side of our nature? The world system would try to convince you that there is no such thing as the devil. The sophisticated worldview of today would have us join the crowd 
by placing the source of all the world's problems on people. Paul says it's not flesh and blood. The world would say it's people. It's your spouse. It's your family members. It's the political systems. It's the policies and the circumstances. The violent criminals, the immoral laws, and the unjust wars. They're at fault. And we have a system that's going to fix all that. Not going to happen. Now, that's not to say that these things are to be ignored. But these are the symptoms of a fallen world, not the source. And what we're trying to prove today, through God's word, at the source is the devil himself. You and I can also be so influenced by this materialistic, man-centered thinking that even though we might nod our heads here in church, acknowledge Satan and the spiritual warfare that goes on, as one writer puts it, some of us, our lives show no evidence of this reality. They actually live in unconscious disbelief. For such persons, this passage provides a much-needed antidote. And our carnality would say, I want to serve my own pleasures and desires. I want to do my own thing. I don't care what anybody says. And so you have the world system. You have our carnality that fights against. And between these two enemies, the spirituals can get pushed aside, can it? You're no longer committed to prayer or witnessing for Jesus. You see, that's how you can be disarmed by Satan. As the spirit of error, says one writer, Satan seeks to counteract the testimony of the spirit of truth. While as the spirit of wickedness, he incites the flesh to protracted rebellion against the holy and ever-blessed will of God. So as we conclude today, notice that this passage contains a call to arms with implicit information and instructions. What happens when you neglect this charge? Well, it's a good chance that you will cave in to temptation and sin. You wind up walking through life as most people do. You won't experience the abundance of joy You won't experience the power and deliverance. You lack care and concern for others. You lack the desire for love and fellowship in God's presence. You start to become uncertain and unsure about the future. You lack confidence about being acceptable to him. You doubt your eternal promise of heaven with God. Today we've received two instructions, battle charges. First of all, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not your own. And secondly, put on the whole armor of God. Next week, we'll begin to take another look at this. We'll look at the detailed aspects of the armor of God. I'm going to call up the worship team. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts and minds. And I pray, Lord God, that this word will take root in our hearts to bring action, that we will indeed be mindful of who our enemy is. And we know that our, where our resources are, Lord, and we will obey the call. We will obey the call to be strengthened in your might. We will obey the command to put on our spiritual armor. 
as we begin this week. And I pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.